Hello and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast from Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We are so glad you've tuned in. My name is Ryan and I'll be your host today. Our prayer as you listen to this sermon series on the final journeys of Paul in Acts is that you'll be encouraged and built up in your walk with Jesus as we study God's word together. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's jump right in. you to open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 19. We have been working through the book of Acts since January, started a new series last week, looking now at the final journeys of Paul. So his third missionary journey, we're going to get into his time in Rome, which was an all expense paid trip to Rome. Uh, And we're going to be studying through that as we go through as well. But Acts chapter 19, as I was uh, studying Ephesus this week, so this is a continuation of last week of Paul's time in Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, which was longer than any other place that he stayed for one time. And while he was in Ephesus, I was learning a little bit about Ephesus, and it was reminding me about my time in Nigeria some of what was happening there and some of this spiritual kind of the spiritual climate of Ephesus was so much like what I was hearing about when I went to Nigeria. Uh, many of you know I have the opportunity to, pre-COVID anyway, hopefully it will start up again, but pre-COVID, go to Nigeria and train pastors along with another, a number of other pastors here. And these are pastors and missionaries who are working largely in rural southeastern Nigeria. You go into these rural areas, and in those areas, it is largely either you're going to come across either one of two things. Either it's going to be prosperity gospel everywhere. You follow this teaching. You listen to him. You give a seed faith offering, and you will be blessed. God's going to give to you whatever you want. It's that prosperity. Follow Jesus and all your wildest dreams that are going to come true. The other thing you're going to find, if you don't find that, especially when you go into the more rural areas, more remote areas, is highly animistic. So you have even some Christianity there, but it's blended with animism. So it's Jesus plus the gods and the spirits that they worship. So they will at one moment sing songs like we just sang, at the next moment give offerings to their gods and spirits that their ancestors worshiped. And so there's a lot of confusion there. And so we have the opportunity to go in with about 25 pastors and missionaries who are serving in areas like this and train them up in how to handle the scriptures and pass them on to others. And it's what, what a blessing it has been to be able to do that. Uh, Nigeria is also one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. Uh, it is the second highest persecuted country in the world for believers in the metric of violence. So violence that's being done towards the church is continuing to escalate. And there's only one country in the world that is more dangerous violently, and that's Pakistan. After Pakistan, it's Nigeria. So these men who we have the opportunity of training are serving in some very difficult and even dangerous territories, dangerous areas. Uh, The last time I was there, I had the opportunity to speak at a conference that they had. And this conference was a gathering of all of the churches, a part of one fellowship. And they met, and some of these Churches would travel for days. So the pastor with their whole church traveling for days to be here at this week-long conference. And I was invited to be one of the speakers at it. And there's a, the photo on the screen here. 
So that, this is me speaking at that conference. And this is actually where I got the idea of our outdoor services and kind of how to structure it was learning from our brothers in Nigeria. When I was speaking, these are the churches that are gathered. This is on, in a, a town called Akezi. Akezi is in Ebony State. It is very rural. And when they, TEPME is the organization that runs this. TEPME stands for the Evangelizers Team Ministries International. And when they came in and purchased this land, it was adjacent to a village that was a highly animistic village. Uh, when they came in, they put in a school, they put in a medical clinic, they uh, began offering clean water, even though they didn't want the water because the, the river was what their ancestors drank and they believed it to be sacred. So they kept giving this fresh water. The villagers kept damaging their water systems because they didn't want anyone else to have it because they thought it was essentially evil to be drinking from this water. Uh, unbelievable things that were happening. But then it, when, they, when they planted themselves there, it was right beside this village that had a witch doctor or a chief priest who did everything they could to stop it. If you look off in the distance, if you see the, the cameraman, that's David Ogibe, who's been joining us for church, if you've seen him on the chats and stuff like that. Him and his family have been joining us, uh, which was a great thing. But off in the distance, just underneath the umbrella, there is a stick, and there's a circle there. And that is a pagan shrine. And that's a pagan shrine where for one week a year, uh, they would have this festival of worship to their gods and to their spirits. And the festival would begin by taking a live bird, uh, tying it with a rope, and tying it to that tree. And so the bird tries to fly away all week. And then once that bird finally falls to its death, it's seen as an offering to that shrine. Uh, there is some uh, speculation that child sacrifice is still done here. We know it's done throughout a number of the rural areas of Nigeria. There's some speculation that happens there, but that's not totally confirmed. And the reason I say it like that is when that festival happens, uh, only the villagers are allowed to be there and look at that shrine and, and be a part of those festivities. If there is an outsider who accidentally stumbles across what's happening there, if it's a woman, they rape her in front of the shrine in worship to their gods. If it's a man, they will bring him in front of the shrine and beat him to the point of death, just before death, as an act of worship to their gods. And this is the, the village that's right next door to this group of believers that have come to set up station to proclaim the, the, the good news of the gospel. And out of this area, all those people you see, those churches have been planted from missionaries that have been trained in that area and left out into the rural areas. So we praise God for that. But when the witch doctor came in, this is where I, I saw these connections with Ephesus. The witch doctor wanted to do everything he could to stop them from coming. The villagers were saying, I think this group is coming to show us the light. And the, and the witch doctor saw this as a threat to his business. He saw it as a threat, and rightfully so. And so he did everything he could to stop them. So one of the earliest converts, one of the earliest believers, was an elderly woman in the village that this witch doctor, this chief priest, was in kind of power over. And some of the stories I'm going to tell you, some of you, some of, you some of me as well, feel when I hear them, I feel very skeptical and I grew up in an environment that probably when C.S. Lewis said there's two extremes when it comes to Satan and the demonic, one is to completely ignore him and the other is to kind of overemphasize his power and influence. Uh, I grew up in an environment that was tend to be more like number one. Like some of the stories I'm going to tell you, I'd be a little bit skeptical until I hear 
men and women sharing these stories face to face and the testimony of this. So this witch doctor came to this woman who had turned her, given her life to Jesus. She had burned all of her trinkets and idols and gods that were in her, in her house, burned them and began to follow Jesus. Their witch doctor, their chief priest, caught wind of this and so decided to pay her a visit. He came to pay her a visit and he was gonna cast a curse over her that would lead her to get violently ill. And so this woman saw him coming. The villagers saw him coming as well. And so she prayed. She just began praying and said, God, show yourself strong. Show yourself stronger than the spirits, than the gods that this man is going to come try to harm me with. And so this man came, and he had the, he was going to pass along a curse to her. And so he brought it in his hand was the idea and went to lift out her, his hand towards her. And by touching her, this curse was going to be passed on to her that would lead her to get violently ill. And the villagers had seen this kind of thing before, and it happens. So they knew. This man, when he reached out his hand, his hand began to violently shake, where he could not control himself anymore. He stopped and essentially ran away from her, didn't say anything. The village people, the villagers saw this, and automatically said, the God of Tetme, the God who these people came to brought, is far more powerful than our God. And that was the beginning seed that began to get planted in this area for the gospel to go out. A little bit later on, there was a lame man in the village, unable to walk. He was brought to the chief priest, and the chief priest, this witch doctor, began to do incantations and spells and and try to make him able to walk again, invoking the power of the evil spirits. And he was unsuccessful at doing it. And the villagers that remember that incident before said, let's ask one of the missionaries from Tetme to come and pray over her. And so that's what they did. And this is like a showdown, right? This is like Elijah-style showdown. And they asked the missionary from Tetme to come pray over her. He came over, and he began to pray over him, sorry, him, the lame man, and the lame man began to walk. And the village, villagers saw this and were blown away with the power of their God. And through that, and the gospel then being proclaimed to them, open ears now, and that radical display of God's power over their God's, the gospel shared to them, and many came to faith in Jesus. And I share that story because what happened there is very similar to what happened in Ephesus. Ephesus was a place that was known for its kind of witch doctor type stuff. It's pagan sorcery. In fact, if you said the word Ephesian writings, like I have some Ephesian writings for you, what that meant was you had a number of magic spells for them to invoke, to use. So to say Ephesian writings is to say magic spells. And so this is the culture and the environment that Paul is in when he's proclaiming the gospel, very similar to what this story I just shared with you. And so when we see God showing up in these miraculous ways, we see him doing it in a context that they would understand. And this is why we don't see this very thing we're going to read about in Ephesians and in Ephesus here in every city he goes to. You don't see this kind of thing happening in Thessalonica and Berea and in Corinth even. But then here we're reading Ephesus, this place that was highly superstitious, that had supernatural evil spirits that would do things and harm people. 
And it's in this context that we start to see God do the miraculous through Paul. And there's a passage here we're going to read where it talks about even the handkerchiefs that he had touched. When they touched someone else, they were being healed. And you think, well, what is going on there? We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But in, in Africa, when I speak, there, there's two tools you have to have whenever you speak. You know what those tools are? First one's the scriptures. Second one's a sweat cloth. If you go back to that picture, guys, go back to that uh, picture right before. See in the bottom right corner, there's a Bible. Oh, it's hard to see a little bit. There's a red cloth. That's Chinway. He's one of the pastors we train. That's his sweat cloth. So everywhere you go, the pastors have a Bible and a sweat cloth. And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing here, where Paul is going to be touching, using the sweat cloth to wipe himself, maybe kind of like a headband type thing. And that was going on, into, and other people were touching it, and they were being healed. So what's going on there? Let's read it together. I know you're interested. I'm going to tell you what it, well, we'll see. I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean anyway. And then we'll kind of wrestle through it. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. So we saw Paul preaching, proclaiming the gospel for many years in, the, in that lecture hall of Tyrannus. And through that, churches are being planted. And while that was happening, look what God did. Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So very obvious, who's the one doing the miracles? It's God doing the miracles. It's not Paul. It's God doing them through him. Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs, sweat cloths, or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So all the Baptists who read this are like, what? I don't know how to handle this one. It's very important to keep in mind what I just shared with you in the context in which the gospel here is being proclaimed. This is something for us, number one, that is descriptive and not prescriptive. Uh, by that, I mean this is describing what happened here in Ephesus based on their culture and their beliefs. And uh, kind of by an act of God's power, God shows himself stronger than their gods and spirits. Where if you think about it, they're, they're invoking uh, their evil spirits to do their bidding and to, to try to raise up lame people, that kind of a thing, and nothing happens. And so look at the power of God being on display here, where even sweat that had touched a man of God is healing people. So it's, we're seeing this huge picture of who God is, this massive picture of God where even the sweat on one of his servants has the power to heal someone. So we're getting a picture of how much bigger God is than all of the spirits and the gods whom they worshiped. Now, what this is not telling us to do is to start a handkerchief ministry. Uh, this has happened in some settings where you read a passage like this, where some have read a passage like this. I remember the first time I ever saw a video like this of a, of a guy on TV saying, I have these green handkerchiefs that I've prayed over, and I will send them to you free of charge. Just send a $200 or more seed faith offering, and whoever you touch with this green handkerchief is going to be healed. Um, that's scam. This is not saying start a handkerchief ministry. And that's not even, if you, if you really want to be uh, more kind of literal in what he does, you need to get a cloth and wipe your sweat off and send it to people. 
And then try to find people that want to receive that from you. But this is very, if you want to kind of apply this, apply it by praying for someone else while you're knitting them a blanket. Don't knit them a blanket and say, I'll send this to you. Just give me $200 and it'll keep you warm. We have to be very careful with passages like this that are describing something for us, not prescribing something. So this is an act of God where we see him doing the miraculous, showing himself strong in a way that shows his power over the evil spirits and the gods whom they worshiped. That's what we're seeing here in principle. And that's what we continue to see. We saw in uh, hearing stories in Nigeria, and we still see it happen today. You know what the greatest miracle is today and all time? Raising Jesus from the dead, you could say. But then along with that, that God can raise us to life. Greatest miracle is that God can change a heart. A heart that beats for the things of this world and transform it into one that beats for the things of God. And we see him doing that over and over and over again here. And we praise God for that. So let's move on from that passage for now. Verse 13, it gets interesting. It gets Continues to be interesting. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over all those who had, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So this was not uncommon at all to have Jewish exorcists like this in Ephesus. I was just sharing with you the culture of Ephesus, of, of a highly supernatural like this. So not unusual to have this. And it also wasn't unusual for them to hear, I'm going to invoke a certain name and see what kind of power comes out of that name. So it was a common practice to do this. And they, and they saw that in the name of Jesus, this, the miraculous were happening. And so that, well, let's, I'm going to try that too. These are people who did not have a relationship with God in any way. They just wanted to use a name only for fame for themselves to see what God would do, to see what their gods would do, to see what kind of power would be invoked by using the name that they've heard other people use. But look at this, verse 15. Sorry, verse 14. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, that's a little bit hard to know exactly what that means. Was he a real Jewish high priest? Uh, we have no record of any Jewish high priest by that name, and we have pretty much the name of every Jewish high priest in the writings that come out of this time. So it's possible they missed him. It's possible that he is one who just took the name of high priest without actually being a high priest. Uh, we're not really entirely sure. There's nothing said about him outside of what's said here in Acts 19. But so seven of his sons, though, we know we're doing this. And then, by, and then look at verse 15. By... But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognized. Who are you? Who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is why uh, Alistair Begg called these not the seven sons of Sceva, but the seven streakers of Sceva. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So very interesting line. When they use this name Jesus and don't have a relationship with him, the evil spirits say, Jesus I know, and they know him. Paul I'm familiar with, I'm acquainted with, is a literal translation here. Jesus I know, Paul I'm acquainted with, 
but who are you? I think it's an interesting question to ask ourselves in light of this passage. Is your name known in hell? Is your name known in hell as one who, as a servant of the Most High God, as a follower of Jesus, you are being used of God to cause so much damage to the kingdom of Satan that your name is known by the demonic? I think it's a good question to wrestle with. Jesus, I know. Paul, I'm acquainted with. I don't know who you are. In other words, Jesus, I know, will defeat me. Paul, I know, I won't have power over because he's a follower of Jesus. But who are you? You're nobody. And so they overtake him without any difficulty at all. And they end up leaving out of the house naked and wounded. If you get into a fight and you are fully clothed to start with, and that fight ends with you being naked and running away, that means you lost. And they run away like this. And notice what happens. The people see this. And what's the result? The result is Jesus is extolled. Jesus is magnified. Jesus, the power of Jesus, is magnified above all others. And fear came upon them all. Then verse 18 goes on to say, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So we have a number of people now coming to faith in Jesus and look at their first act of obedience. They get rid of all of their trinkets and idols and everything in their home. Just like that woman in Nigeria did when she began following Jesus, got rid of all that stuff. And we see them doing that here. Verse 19, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That is equivalent today of about $5.5 million of black magic materials. That is one expensive bonfire. But they do it in obedience now they're following Jesus, and it's just like we sing in that song. The world before, the world behind me. The, no, that's not the line I was thinking of. I wrote it down. What's the line from that song? Sorry, I was mumbling, and you have masks on. It's hard to hear. Yeah, but then there's another line in that song that I didn't mean, that I meant to actually say. Oh, everything behind me. What's that one? Uh, we need to sing it. Andy, can you come lead us? <laughs> the world behind. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Let me just, just talk amongst yourselves just for a second. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Let's just stick with that one. It's this idea, though, of burning everything. Like, I'm not going back. I think I'm thinking of a whole different song. No turning back, no turning back, that one. That's a completely different song, isn't it? Yeah, sorry for throwing you for a loop. But this idea that when you begin following Jesus, you're gonna give up all of those things, all of those things you live for that you thought were gonna give you joy, that you've discovered don't give you joy, don't give you happiness. You give those up and you're gonna follow hard after Jesus and there's no turning back to anything else. And that's the picture here. Same thing we see with Elisha. When Elisha decides to take over for Elijah, 
what is the first thing he does? He burns his plows and kills his cows, his whole, everything to say, I'm not coming back to that. I'm only going forward with Jesus. And so that's this picture that we see here of this repentance, of this turning to Jesus. I'm not gonna have any, kind of anything to go back on. I am all in for Jesus. And look what happened, verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When Paul reflects on his time in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he points out that the success stemmed from the power of God working through him expounding the scriptures. And so here we see the word of God as a result increasing and prevailing. Verse 21 goes into just a short thing before it gets into a riot. Verse 21 says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So you have a, some kind of travel issues or travel comments that are being made here. For two places he wants to go to. You see that? First he's got to go to Jerusalem before he gets to Rome. Remember why he wants to go to Jerusalem? We've talked about this before, but it's a long time ago. The churches, the Gentile churches, the other churches were giving offering, were giving money to uh, be able to give towards those in Jerusalem because where in Jerusalem, the number one job was working in the temple when the followers of Jesus lost those jobs in the temple because they chose to follow Jesus. They were living off of nothing. And so you have churches, other churches coming alongside, caring for that need. And so Paul has an offering that he's got to bring to Jerusalem. But see, he desires to go to Rome. Why would he want to go to Rome? Jesus said in Acts 1.8, what? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. You could say the center of the ends of the earth in Paul's mind in this day was Rome. And so he desired to take the gospel as far as he could get. And he talks about in Romans wanting to go to Spain. So when the Holy Spirit moves in a person's life, there's this longing for the gospel to continue to go into farther and farther areas where it's never been proclaimed before. And we see that kind of thing happening here. And I just kind of briefly mentioned at the beginning, but Paul eventually gets to Rome. Rome's an expensive trip, and it's like God in his sovereignty said, I'm going to have the Roman government pay for your travels to Rome. And he's imprisoned. He's taken there to Rome, and we're going to study some, some time when he spends in prison. But God makes a way for him to get to Rome, which is what he always desired to do, just in a way that was a little bit different than what he had thought. And how often that happens with us when we ask God to do something, or he does something in a way that just wasn't like what we had thought. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's, again, Luke's way of saying it was a big disturbance. He loves to say that language, no little disturbance. It was a big disturbance concerning the way. And that's what Christianity, that's what the church was called, the way. And it comes from Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So those who follow the way of Jesus, there was no little disturbance. Verse 24, and this is the disturbance. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis, that temple was in Jerusalem as well. It was uh, the pleasure God, the God who was in charge of fertility. And uh, they made shrines. He was one who would have made little idols in worship to her. Brought no little business to the craftsmen. Verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And this is the key thing to keep in mind. This is what they were most concerned about. This is the first thing Luke mentions. So they're going to mention some other things that realistically, uh, honestly, they're, they're probably less familiar with those things than they are with their hurt, how the way that their wallets are hurting by the gospel being proclaimed in this way. This is what they're most concerned about, their wealth. And, and verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So they're concerned about their wealth. They also, they also uh, say that they're concerned about the worship of Artemis, that she's going to lose her glory if Jesus keeps being proclaimed, that Jesus is robbing glory from Artemis. And so they're upset about this. And this is something we need to remember, that when the Holy Spirit moves, evil gets mad. When the Holy Spirit moves, those who profit off of oppressing people or profit off of any form of evil get angry. And we're going to see this unfold, that very truth. Verse 25, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is the... Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They start crying this out. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So Paul's saying, let me into the crowd. And the disciples are, these guys want to hurt you. I think let's use wisdom right now. And let's keep you back for a little bit. Let's see what God does. That's wise. That's not, that's not being fearful. That's just being wise. But when Paul, verse 30, oh, sorry, verse 31, and even among some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, sent to him who were and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for this assembly was in confusion. And this is funny. Most of them did not know why they had come together in the first place. That's the mob mentality, isn't it? Oh, there's a crowd, there's a mob, let me join in with it. What are we here for? After crying out and causing riots, they forget or maybe didn't even know in the first place while they were there. How often do we see that today as well? Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they're crying out together, 
in worship of Artemis, trying to silence all others. Some of them didn't know why they were doing it, but they were still doing it too. Verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? There was a giant um, statue of Artemis that sat in that temple, which very interestingly today, it can be found in the Vatican But that same statue was a statue of Artemis, and they believed that it was a statue that fell from heaven. It fell from the sky. And so look at what he says. Based on that, if this is a statue that truly fell from the sky, verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of the goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are the ones who are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he, demi- he dismissed the assembly. So this is how God works. This is a man who comes to the scene and says, if this statue fell from heaven, then these gods that these guys are proclaiming is no threat to us. Oh, how deceived he was. But don't worry about it. That guy, if if Artemis fell from heaven, it's no threat to us. And notice verse 27. For here, these men are neither sacrilegious or blasphemous of the goddess. So what that tells us is, is that they didn't go around cutting down Uh, Artemis. What they went around doing was lifting up Jesus. And there's a time for maybe cutting down things like Artemis. Absolutely. But they were wise in how they were sharing the gospel here is that they weren't saying anything sacrilegious against Artemis. They were just lifting up Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And so you see wisdom here being used by these early followers. So let's just bring this all together as we wrap things up. When the Holy Spirit moves is what I've called today. And there's a number of different evidences that, that we see here that happen when the Holy Spirit moves. Because what we're seeing here is really a spiritual awakening happening in Ephesus. And when a spiritual awaken, awakening happens, there are certain things that happen And the first one is God's power is on full display. When the Holy Spirit moves, people see the power of God at work. The second thing that happens is Jesus is magnified. When the Holy Spirit moves, Jesus is the one who is lifted up. When the Holy Spirit moves, number three, sin is confessed and renounced. There's repentance that happens. And we see this throughout history in all of the spiritual awakenings, that there's this greater awareness of your sin. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize how ugly your sin is. That sin that looked so attractive to you at one time in your life is now you're beginning to see it with open eyes of how ugly it is and how there is no life in it. And when the Holy Spirit moves in your life and opens your eyes to those things, that sin gets renounced. That sin gets, anything that's associated with that sin gets burns and cast aside. This great act of repentance that we see happening here. So sin is confessed and renounced. The other thing that happens is God's word increases and prevails. 
Every single spiritual awakening that happens, including what we read about in Ephesus here, happened as a result of the word of God being proclaimed. The gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed. The word of God increases. Number five, when the Holy Spirit moves, see two things happening in the mention of Jerusalem and Rome. Number one is the church selflessly cares for one another. They give generously for the sake of others. They love each other, care for each other the way that Jesus does for us. But then we also see in Rome, there's this desire to make much of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit moves in someone's life and in the midst of a church family, there's this desire to give generously for the sake of the gospel going to the nations. And there's, a, there's a, this desire within us to send out even the best from among us to go into the nations to bring this good news there. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit moves in someone's life. And then number six, when the Holy Spirit moves, evil gets mad. Satan gets angry. And we can make so, too much of that where we're looking for a demon under every rock. Is what C.S. Lewis said. The other danger is just to ignore it. Or we can understand that the devil is like a roaring lion in this world seeking whom he can devour. Satan's at work in this world. And he gets mad when the gospel gets proclaimed. So I have conversations with people after they get baptized and there's an act of obedience that takes place at someone's baptism. Say, get ready for an attack. It's oftentimes when Satan attacks the hardest after acts of obedience. When we are faithful to the word of God and live that out, Satan gets mad. Evil gets angry. People who are profiting off of oppressing others get angry. But we can trust the God who works through us and in us that he will magnify himself through us as we surrender our lives to him. So a number of things in, in, in a great awakening, in, in a movement of the Holy Spirit that happens. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where your heart is towards Jesus. But the life change that happened here and the life change and the joy that people begin to know throughout all of history happens when we recognize our need of Jesus. When we recognize our need of that sin that separates us from God needs to be paid for, needs to be atoned. And you cannot pay for that yourself. So Jesus came and paid that price for you. And we can, when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says we're saved. We, we are reconciled to God through the work of Jesus on the cross. And he changes our heart. He begins to show us the ugliness of our sin. And it's not all up from there. There's ups and downs. The Christian life is like this. There's ups and downs. But the Holy Spirit carries us through shows us the joy of our salvation time and time again. So I don't know where you're at today, but we're going to sing a closing song that invites every one of us to come into his presence, invites every one of us to accept the free offer of grace, the free offer of forgiveness that's available through Jesus Christ, that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we're saved, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and he begins to work in and through us.
And I pray that we will see, as a church family, more and more people coming to faith in Jesus and being obedient to what the scriptures call us to. Let me pray, and I'm going to invite the worship team up, and they're going to close us in this song. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, on this Thanksgiving. We're so thankful today for what he has accomplished for us that we who are helpless in and of ourselves, that we who are dead in our sin and can do nothing in and of our own strength to make us undead, that Jesus paid the price on the cross for our sin and makes a relationship with you possible through all who call to you in faith. And so, Father, I pray right now for anyone who's in this room with us or anyone who's joined us online that Maybe you're tugging on some hearts now. Maybe your spirit's at work in someone's life now. I pray, Father, that you would open eyes to the truth of who you are, that you would draw people to yourself even today. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you that we can come to you broken and be mended. We thank you that we can come to you as sinners and be declared righteous the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless.